<laughs> All right, you're okay. set. I'll try not to touch things here. Well, let's just um, kind of continue the word of thanks here that Alec got us going on. Uh, it would be appropriate for me to offer thanks to Drew and uh, the invitation to come and be part of the retreat. I think it would be right for us to, in light of Alec and Randy and Rachel and others that work with y'all, uh, to give it up for them because these things don't just happen. You know, they really are. They really matter. And uh, since, since I'm going first before the worship team, that doesn't just happen either. They get together, they rehearse, they go. So how about for the worship team, let's uh, thank the Lord for them. That's good. That's good. Now, now let me express my thanks as I've kind of just slightly alluded to for this congregation from which the bulk of you all come or worship while you're at OSU, whatever, and that's a Sunnybrook. Uh, my relationship with the church actually goes way back, way before Jim Johnson ever came there. And I have great respect for this church. I just need to be really vulnerable and honest with you and tell you that my prayer life was in the ditch many years ago. And when I went on a sabbatical uh, to study at Denver Seminary in Colorado years ago, I thought, Lord, something's got to change. Because I felt like my prayers were just kind of a gimme list. You know what I'm talking about? A gimme list. Give me this. Give me that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. And, and, and so I decided that I would set up a system because that's just kind of how I'm wired. And so on Mondays, I pray for churches. And the reason I pray for churches on Mondays is because a lot of us who preach and teach, we're ready to resign on Monday. You know, it's, it's kind of like after Sunday. I mean, when I get done with a sermon on Sunday morning, our two services, uh, by noon, it's like, okay, that was a B minus, you know, whatever. By two o'clock, I hate the sermon. And by five o'clock, I hate my guts. That's just kind of how it works. So Monday, I know that a lot of guys are kind of coming off. The, so I just started, I thought, how can I pray for churches? And one of the churches I pray for is Sunnybrook. 
And the reason is because, I, I've, as mentioned to you, you've got a lot of connections there between Paul and Morgan and Drew and, you know, Jim and, and Alec and, 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 and Justin, all the guys that are there on the staff that you enjoy so much. And uh, it's just been a blessing. So, so the prayer kind of starts out, I kind of move geographically. And I'm only telling you this because uh, I, I want to edify you by this. So in, indirectly, I end up praying for you all on Mondays. So I kind of start in Canada with a couple of Jim's friends, uh, Scott and Tammy. They work at Christ Church of the Meadows in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. You think it's cold in Stillwater? You ain't seen nothing yet, okay? And, and then I move my way down to talk about Mike and Carolyn O'Toole. That's Jim's sister, Carolyn. She suffers from depression. You might want to pray for her. And then I pray for Frank and Betty. That's Jim's parents up in Calgary. By the way, if you don't know, Jim's minister that he grew up under just died. Alan Dunbar, 84 years old, was living in Kalispell. He had lost his wife, Judy, some time back. So that was just something that, that just came through just in the last week and a half or so. And then I moved down to Sunnybrook and to Stillwater. And I pray for Jim and Andrea and Matthew and Maxwell and, you know, uh, 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 McKenzie. Oops, got McKenzie out of order with Maxwell. But anyway, you know, I just, and I just, I only tell you that because I, I wasn't a very good prayer. And, and sometimes when you set up a system, you, you, you can do it better. So somebody go back and, and, and tell Jim that I have scheduled him for my funeral. And uh, so, you know, you can tell him that he's on the list. He made the cut. And so I just, I don't think I've ever told him that before. So you be sure to tell him. Also ask him to tell you about the time in Calgary when uh, it was his ordination. And uh, he, he <clears throat> how should I say this nicely? We went to a hockey game. The, the Flames, I think, is the team in Calgary. Anyway, uh, so just, all you have, any Star Trek fans here? From, any, yeah? Okay. You remember when the flip phone, or what looks like a flip phone came out and says, we got to get those communicators, Jim. You remember that line? Just tell him that on Sunday. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, so, okay. Anyway, thank God for you. Thank God for what you're doing. Thank God for all the things that God has before you. Because if Jesus tarries, think of this. How many collective years represented in this group where Jesus will be served? I mean, I'm soon to turn 71 years old. But your life is ahead of you here. Thanks for the whistle. Appreciate that very much. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So, 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 you know, if Jesus tarries, just think collectively of how many years of Christian service that this group represents. Isn't that amazing? And that'd be great. So anyway, thanks for the chance. My uh, wife taught our children, you can never say thank you enough. So let me express mine for the privilege of being here. Now, you know, we've been talking about living missionally and being on track and on target for Jesus. And we're talking about that from the parables. And so we've talked already about sowing the seed. Just, just, just cast it. Just, just sow it. it. It may never come back. It may seem to you like it never work. But as a preacher, I've just banked my life on Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth and do not return to God without doing what they're supposed to do, so is my word. And a lot of times I walk away and I think, I don't know that anything very good happened there this weekend. And, and yet God takes it and moves and works with it. And that's what we, so just keep casting it, just sow the seed. Just keep helping the people. Boy, we had a great conversation at lunch, didn't we? About, yeah, but what about that guy who's a con artist and do we have to help him? And yeah, you got to have the wisdom of Solomon to know who to help and who not to help. Because sometimes you're enabling irresponsibility. So, so you got to think, okay, what's the best help? That's, what's the best help? But that kind of brings me to this moment. And I want to talk about finding lost things from the most familiar chapter when it comes to parables in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, finding lost things, finding lost things. Let me set this up. I told you each time we'd give a little word about parables. So the first was about the definition of parable and then the functions of a parable. I'll just do it in one kind of story, quick story, very quick story. And that was the story of the little girl who came to her mom and said, Mom, can I go outside and play with the boys? And mom said, No, the boys are too rough. The little girl thought for a minute. She said, If I find a smooth one, can I play with him? <laughs> well, you might find a smooth boy. But let me tell you what you cannot find. A smooth parable. Because most of these are kind of beat you up and body slam you to the mat. Parables function like holy sandpaper. About the time you think you've got it, you don't. And, and, and not only that, but they kind of beat you up a little bit. You heard about the Sunday school teacher? 
who was giving the parable of the you know, publican and the sinner who went up to the temple to pray. By the way, that's the only parable Jesus ever told that had a church setting. The reason that people listen to his stories is because they sounded wholly secular. Therefore, they weren't threatened. But once Jesus started moving in, then all of a sudden their sovereignty over their own lives was threatened. But there's one about the Pharisee and the publican who go up to the temple to pray. You remember how it goes. The publican beats his chest, you know, and says, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee, he just brags, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. The lady teaching the Sunday school class taught the Sunday school class the lesson. And then she's thanked God at the end of the lesson. Thank you, God, that we're not like that dirty old Pharisee. It'd be wonderful if the teacher could hear the passage, you know, that she just taught from. So these things are kind of slippery. They're like holy sandpaper. And believe it or not, this wonderful story about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons. You notice I put an S on that. Sons, plural. Sons. Okay. It sounds so innocent. It sounds so great. But if you really have ears to hear, they'll beat you up a little bit. They'll be like holy sandpaper. And you'll find that these stories are not exactly smooth. And that's what we will find as we journey into this chapter. So let me just say a number of things up front as we start. First of all, it's always good to read the context, right? The, the, the literary verses that precede and the ones that follow. What's the context? Again, this is the travel narrative of Luke between chapters 9 and 19. And the last thing he said in chapter 14, I find, I don't know about you, I find this the most difficult teaching on discipleship. In fact, my text for tomorrow morning's sermon is the first 24 verses of chapter 14 the parable of the wedding feast and going out to the hedges and the highways and inviting people to come finding lost people but then toward the end of chapter 14 he gives this teaching on discipleship it's pretty aggressive he said if you come after me you gotta hate your father and hate your mother I remember when my daughter Allison first learned that in Sunday school she got in the car after church and said dad I hate you I said trust me the feelings mutual anyway um <laughs> Of course, she, she just learned this passage. You've got to hate your mom and your dad and, your, and even your own life. And if you don't hate your own life, then you cannot be my disciple. I was listening to Aaron Wheeler preach in chapel while I was doing my work at the office the other day. And he said, the journey with Jesus is a journey of loss. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. Luke adds, daily and follow me. Wow. So the journey with Jesus is learning how to lose yourself, crucify yourself. See, our culture wants to pamper yourself. Jesus calls us to the crucified self because that's the happiest life. That's the best life. So Jesus gives some stringent... And the last thing he says in chapter 14 is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you pretend there's no chapter division, you get to chapter 15, and it says, now the tax collectors and the harlots... Wow drew near to hear him. Jesus was a jerk magnet. He just kept, all these ragamuffins just kept following him and the religious people were very put off by him, right? So they wanted to hear, he, said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the harlots, and in fact, Jeff Walling said one time, you got a church without harlots? What kind of church is that? Yeah, because these people follow Jesus. But the Pharisees, the religion police, the ones that were sappy in their spirituality and they just kind of had piety that would make you throw up. They criticized Jesus and they said, he welcomes sinners. The verb tense is past. And then it says, and he continually, habitually, daily eats with them. The religious people of Jesus' day, it was one thing to welcome outsiders it was another thing to eat with them because when you eat with them, you end up accepting them. You might even become like them. That's why at our church, because we've got so many opportunities the Lord is laying before us this year, we had to do this open door, open table theme and studying the table fellowships. Jesus has got a lot of room at his table for a lot of people, both the influential and the ragamuffins, as Brendan Manning calls them. Well, then when he got this criticism about who he ate with, what's he say? Then Jesus told them this parable. That's verse 3. Parable? I'm not real smart, but parable is singular, not plural. You would think he would have said parables. But it's parable. Is this one story or three? Is it one story or four? 
And Jesus begins to talk to the people and nothing quite like it had been said before. The lost sheep, or is it the story about the shepherd? Hmm. The lost coin, or is the story about the woman who searched? And the lost boys, or is the story about the waiting father? You see, Jesus is a master storyteller, and he has such variety in his preaching. He'll talk about a sheep, that's an animal. He'll talk about a coin, that's an inanimate object. And he'll talk about familial things, like family life. I don't know what your family life's like. I come from a fairly strong Christian family, but we were as dysfunctional in some ways as other people are. So, Jesus, there's great variety. You know, if I had my way, all the illustrations in a sermon would be about sports. Because that's what I like. Okay? But Jesus is much wiser. So Jesus says, well, how about this? How about farm? Let's go down to the farm. Let's talk about a sheep. Let's talk about a coin. Let's talk about sons. So there's great variety in what he... The theme seems to be all the way through this joy. And in the second parable, we even read that angels rejoice. I've been working more on angels lately and this divine counsel that may have heard the word, let us make man in our image. It's a very stunning passage about the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so I've been talking about, wow, God has billions of angels that serve him. So we read about joy, even in the angels in heaven, over finding this loss. And, and notice also the fractions. Uh, the fractions. Drew and I were just talking, and this is providential, Drew, uh, about our grandson, Ethan. Who, who, you talk about connections that are kind of cool. <laughs> He's been interviewing. He's graduated from Ozark Christian College. He's married a girl from Tanzania. Amelia, that I'm taking total credit for this union. Thank you very much. And the reason is because one day in a sermon, Amelia from Africa was in the service with her grandma, and she heard me use a poem that that Corey's son Ethan had created on Twas the Night Before Christmas and all through the house, except he put Christian lyrics to it. And when Amelia went out that morning, she said, that poem that your grandson did, that was awesome. I said, yeah, it's pretty good. He's still in the will. Anyway, so I said... um, (laughs) So she, she, she said, wow. So she started stalking him on Facebook. They're getting married May the 15th. I'm taking total credit for this. But here's the connection for y'all. And really with Drew's family. It really goes to Drew's family, I suppose. And that's this. That there's a good friend of mine. Very good friend of mine. We sat at the bench playing basketball in college together. And he, 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 he preached for years and years at the Boulevard Church down in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And one night, he and Tria got home from a vacation. And uh, they were uh, kind of putting things away. But James had to a, had a go make a visit on a family that had been visiting the church some. And James was down his back. Sometimes he gets back troubles. In fact, he, was, he couldn't even stand up straight. And he says, I've got to go make this call. And Tria said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to bed. No, I told him I would be there. I'm going. So he went and he made the visit with this family lying on his back on the floor. When he left, the couple said, you know, if it's that important for that guy to come to our house and lay on the floor to talk to us about the church, maybe we better go to church. And my son, Corey, married into that family. And now the word on the street is that one of the ministries that Ethan and Amelia are looking at is the Boulevard Church in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Oh, what goes around comes around. And so here's the thing. Well, I'm telling you that's about Ethan. I told you that when the grandkids get 12, we kind of steal them for a week and cram our precious values down their little throats, you know. And and so we were, Ethan and and Eli from my other son's, you know, family came together because they're very close in age, just three months apart. So then there were bar mitzvah. We we were living in Denver at the time and they came out. We took them to a Rockies game that was rained out in the second inning and we lost our money. Anyway, this was... And, and so one of the things they have to do if they're, if they're boys, they have to take their gaga, that's grandma, that's my wife, okay? And I remember the first time, I, I'm not very culturally aware, I came, came home and said, hey, Lady Gaga, you want to go get some ice cream? Yeah. She said, what did you call me? Anyway, so I, I didn't know. And, and so anyway, they call her Gaga. So, so they had to take Gaga, Ethan and Amelia, and rather Eli had to take Gaga out. And I said, now, boys, you're going to do everything. You're going to open the door. You're going to dress up. You're going to take your grandma. Here's a $50 bill. 
and you're going you're gonna to pay for the bill, and you figure the tip, the gratuity. And Ethan said, oh, Papa, I'm not very good at fractions. <laughs> I said, well, and then those dirty dogs, Olive Garden told them how much they had to give for the tips. You know, I hate those people. Anyway, so, so, so here's why I'm telling you that. Because this chapter is filled with fractions. The first story is one to a hundred. The second story is one to ten. The third story is one to two. So it's got the theme of joy. It's got the fractions. It's got a lot of stuff going on. It's how God is pictured. How do you picture God? Did you ever as a kid just lie on the ground and look up at the clouds? and Well, that looks like an elephant. That looks like a... God is pictured as a shepherd... Ready for this? Ladies, I hope you'll take this home. God is pictured as a woman. That's right. Oh, where's the young lady? Let's see. Who saw I was Mark Moore. Where, where are you? Oh, that, yes, honey. Thank you. It's, it's, say your name again. Yes. You were so kind to mix me up with Mark Moore. He'll be greatly offended. But it was, uh, you know, I, I, anyway... Uh, in all of, all of that, this business of, you know, what God... Mark Moore preached a sermon one time in chapel called The Holy Spirit is a Woman. That was the title of... In all of the gender stuff that, oh, gee, you guys have to deal with. Well, I'm glad I'm going to be dead. But, um, <laughs> oh, I don't know that I could have taken that. Anyway, God doesn't have a gender problem. You might at the campus. God doesn't. He can be pictured as a woman. The pronouns in the New Testament are masculine when it describes he, him. But God has feminine qualities. That's very, very clear. So there's Mark Moore's story for you. And, and then God is pictured as a father. And keep in mind that in the parables of Jesus' world, because he wasn't the only one who told them, the rabbis told parables as well, that landowners, as I mentioned to you earlier, kings, fathers, all played the God role in the story. So let's see, he's a shepherd, and he's a father, and he's a woman. Because he made man and woman in his own image. So why would it shock anybody that in all of us there would be some femininity? In fact, ladies, could I challenge you? In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says to the whole church, men, women, and children, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians 13, 14, act like men. Now, this is not Tim the Toolman Taylor. No, nobody's grunting here. But, but um, I'm just saying that why would God tell the whole church to act like men? Because there must be something manly about the bride of Christ. Hmm. And there must be something feminine about God's men. God did all this. So, so you got that kind of thing going. Also, you have some real doctrinal salvific issues going on. There, there's some real doctrine in this. I remember one day in class when Haddon Robinson said, Does, do the parables contain doctrine like you'd find in the epistles, you know, teaching the churches? And Dr. Robinson said, well, if Jesus wasn't teaching doctrine in those parables, pray tell, what was he doing? He was picturing God in certain ways. In fact, if you want a doctrinal issue, here it is. The first two parables deal with this idea of divine initiative. The shepherd seeks the lost sheep. And the woman searches for the lost coin. But the daddy waits for the boy to come home. you got divine initiative and human response. Here, Alec, this is just for you. Klein Snodgrass says... Probably the, in the English-speaking world, the expert on parables. Klein Snodgrass says that the two first parables in this chapter are twins, but they're not identical twins. So with all of that here, clearly there's this accent on the last one. In fact, there is in parable study what we call intensification. It means the umpapa. That's a very technical theological word there. It, it means the umpapa will be on the last one. So the shepherd and the lost sheep and the woman with the lost coin, it just kind of sets up the big one, verses 11 to 32. So you ready? Let's take a look. What do we learn from this first one? This is in chapter 15, beginning with verse 4, and this is what we read. With what man of you... Oh, this is a question, so it's an interrogative parable. Jesus is interested in how you would answer it. What man of you, having a hundred sheep... Holy cow. 
No, holy sheep. Uh, that's big. You know, most flocks would be 15 to 20. And Jesus, so this man must be rich. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. If he lost one of them, does not leave the 99. Where? I don't know how many times I read this as a kid and never saw the next line. In the open country. I'm not sure how much to make about that. Klein Snodgrass says, be careful. But Fred Craddock would say, underline it. I always had these 99 fluffy little sheep in the barn. I thought, well, he left them safe. No, he didn't. He left them exposed. Because he cares so much about the one. Hmm. He leaves them in the open country and goes after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. A little lamb, I'm told, weighs about 62 pounds. And the Greek word that is used here for lay means you kind of strap the legs to either side of your neck and you bear it up. And in 1 Peter it says that this Jesus person bore our sins in his body on that tree. There's no salvation in these stories? Really? He bore it up. He laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what I find in this story? We're talking about finding lost things. I find the vulnerability of the find. The vulnerability of the find. There are two things that make me think about that. One is, he left the 99 in the open country. Matthew's account of this same story, which is a different context entirely, says he left them on the mountains. Again, I always thought them in the barn. No, they're left very exposed to wolves and thieves. What's that say to you about God? He's very vulnerable. Vulnerability means open to being attacked, capable of being wounded. Vulnerable is when you unzip your heart to somebody else and they betray you. Vulnerability means that somehow you're willing to run the risk of some great loss. You talk about vulnerability here. And there's another vulnerability. He lifts that little lamb up when he finds it and puts it on his shoulders and bears him up as he takes the lamb home. This, this, whoever this shepherd is. And you notice that Jesus never told us. He just lets that kind of flap in the wind. It could be God. It could be you. It could be the elders at Sunnybrook, because they're called shepherds in the Bible. Who who is this person? We don't know, but we know that there's this vulnerability of the find. I know this is a story from my world of preaching. It might not do anything to you, but I'm going to try it anyway. There was a famous evangelist years ago. Have anybody ever heard this name? Dwight L. Moody. Have you ever heard the name Moody? Like as in Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. All right, Dwight L. Moody, famous evangelist. He was kind of the Billy Graham of his day. And he was holding a, a crusade in Scotland. And they were traveling on a train from Glasgow to Edinburgh. I've been on that train. And his music guy was a person named Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey, when they were waiting, he and Moody, to get boarding on the train, he was reading the newspaper. And he came across a a little poem by a lady named Elizabeth Clefane. And the poem was based on this passage. And the poem was, the 90 and 9. The 90 and 9. I don't remember the rest of the words. Okay, that's, anyway, that was the poem. It was just a poem. And, and, and Ira Sankey tried to interest the great evangelist as they were waiting for the train to go from Glasgow to Edinburgh. Look at this poem. This is a great poem about the 99 that the shepherd left in the wilderness to be able to go get the one. And Moody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, he's working on his sermon. Don't bother me. So Ira Sankey tore it out of the paper and folded it and put, stuck it in his pocket. And they made the train ride. Guess what passage Dwight L. Moody was preaching on that night? Luke 15, 4 through 7. The shepherd looking for the lost sheep. And when he got done, this is what we preachers do to music ministers. When he got done, he said, Ira, come to the organ and play something appropriate for the moment. Ebede, ebede, ebede. So Ira Sankey gets out of his chair. He doesn't know what he's going to do as he's walking up there. Dear God, help me. 
Then he remembered the poem. He took it out of his pocket. He laid it on the little stand there on the organ. And on the fly, he created the song that hasn't changed a note since. The 90 and 9. How the great shepherd will leave the night. You talk about vulnerability. You also talk about somebody was at work miraculously to make this happen. So are you vulnerable enough? Are you vulnerable enough to go find lost things? How about the next story? The next story, verses 8 to 10. It's the shortest one in the chapter. And I think it indicates something about the earnestness of the find. The earnestness of the find. Look at verse 8. Or what woman? Another interrogative parable. Or what woman having ten silver coins? Now sometimes this is called the drachma, which was a Greek coin. It would be similar to the Roman denarius. It's a day's wage. We talked about it already. A day's wage. So, uh, ten silver coins. If she loses one coin, is she responsible for losing it? Doesn't say that. She seeks diligently until she finds it. In fact, she will light a lamp. She will sweep the house. She will seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy before the angels of God in heaven over one sinner who repents. By the way, this is the only of the three stories that tells us angels were rejoicing. There was a guy back after my, about my time by the name of Larry Bryant. He became a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee, and he wrote a song based on this. That's when the angels rejoice. That's, it's not when the Wright brothers flew their plane. This is when angels rejoice. But I find the earnestness of the search. You ever lost your keys? You ever lost your cell phone? You ever lost... We had an interesting thing happen just recently. One of my co-workers, Terry Bolin, his wife Carol, come to our church. <laughs> On Sunday night, just a week ago past, uh, Terry called me and he said, uh, did they find a cell phone in the church? I said, I don't know, Terry. Why? Well, we, we, we lost it. It's Carol's cell phone. We don't know where it is. And I said, well, I can check tomorrow morning when we get to church. I'll take a look. I don't know. Nobody said anything. Okay, you ready for it? They were able, you know, you can track your phone. You, you understand this. I lost mine once on campus, and up in the chapel, they told me it was down in the multi-purpose building. I said, how did you do that? You got ESP or something? What is your deal? Anyway, so I didn't know about that fancy stuff. It, so we, it, sure enough, the, my phone was down in the multi-purpose building. Well, they tracked the phone, and they realized the phone was about uh, two blocks south and one block west of the church. And Terry texted and said, we think you have our cell phone Call me and I will be out there to get it. They even filed a police report. Do you know what really happened? One of our other members by the name of Mike and Jackie Gage sat behind the Bolins in church. And when Carol Bolin stood up, her phone fell out of her pocket into Jackie's purse. And so Jackie went home with Carol's phone, nobody having a clue. Here it's like, these people are kleptomaniacs. They're, they robbed No, they're wonderful church people. It took them a week. Now, if that had fallen into her Bible, I'd be pretty upset. It took a week for you to find. Anyway, you, you get the idea. Have you ever just searched frantically? Where in the world is this? So years ago, when I came back and assumed the academic dean's responsibilities at the college, I had to be down the hill for a scholarship banquet. I was supposed to give a little talk to the scholarship winners. So that night I was preaching in our Wednesday night service, 2020-20 service, 20 minutes of preaching, 20 minutes of prayer, 20 minutes of singing, 2020-20. And I was doing a series, and I, w I took the whole semester to preach through Luke 15. It took me all semester to just go very slowly through this chapter. And so I asked a friend of mine, Jeff Snell, I said, Jeff, would you mind filling in for me in the chapel? I gotta be at a scholarship banquet. He said, be glad to. What's the text? I said, Luke 15, 8 through 10, the woman who lost the coin. Now, Jeff is an outstanding preacher. He can spin more plates while he's preaching than you could shake a stick at. This guy's phenomenal. And so he preached, and he did really, really, really good. And I'm never going to ask him to fill in for me ever, ever, ever again because they wanted him back, okay? And you know what happened as a result of that? The girls, because guys don't do this usually, 
the girls went back to their dorm room after he was done and drew a picture of a broom with crayons and colored markers and pens and taped the picture of the broom on their door of their dorm room. Why did they do that? Because Jeff told in his sermon that the oldest daughter, Allison, had just become a Christian. In fact, she was baptized in Turkey Creek on the north side of the campus. And he and Francine, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, I couldn't believe she wanted me to preach her funeral. Don't do that to me, Francine. 51 years old. And, and so they decided that, what should we get for Allison for a baptismal gift? You ought to get something, you ought to get something when you get baptized. <laughs> as a gift from the church. So they decided they would get her a broom to remind her that her job now as a saved person is to sweep and sweep and sweep and sweep and find lost things. The earnestness of the church. So did you ever go to church camp, ride a broom around the room, ride a broom around the room? Did you ever do this? The order of the fork? Oh, it's probably something from way ancient past. Probably, not. But anyway, the point is simply, what will you do to, 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 to find lost things? How about an earnest search? How about getting yourself a broom? And then the last story. Oh, it doesn't get any better than this. You've got the vulnerability of the finding lost things. You've got the earnestness of finding lost things. And finally, you've got this. You've got this. The celebration when it's found. The most famous story begins this way. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. So do I. Casey and Corey. Casey will be preaching tomorrow morning in Indianapolis. Corey will be leading worship in Springfield, Missouri. They're very alike and they're very different. With Corey, you could just go, Corey. And he would just start to bawl. Casey, you could hit him in the face with a brick and that boy would not cry. Man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property. Oh, you didn't know your, your role in this text, did you? Let me try that again. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. See, what you're supposed to do now is you're supposed to go, <gasps> There you go. See, we just think this is a snot-nosed kid who's a rebellious teenager, right? Oh, you couldn't be more wrong. Because in the Middle East, nobody, I mean nobody, would do this. Because in the Middle East, there was a guy named Kenneth Bailey. He lived in Beirut. And what he would do is go out to the Bedouin shepherds whose lifestyle has not changed for a thousand years. And he would read them the parables of Jesus. And when he read them this, that a young boy came to his father, the younger of the two, come to his father, give me my share of the estate. And all of them went, <gasps> so Kenneth Bailey reads it again. The younger came to his father. They said, well, he said, why do you keep doing that? No Middle Eastern boy would ever do that. Because what he's asking is for his father to die. To test that thesis, and I don't think Alec was in this class, but we had a campus, we had some missionaries on campus one semester by the name of James and Katie Waddell. They serve in North Africa, a 99.99% Muslim. And I said, James, he was sitting in my Life of Christ class. I said, have you ever... Have you ever read the parables of Jesus to the Muslims? And, and they responded, certainly. And we were covering Luke 15 that day. And he said, actually, I did read this parable. I said, the younger boy came to his father and said, Father, give me my share of the property that falls to me. And when he read that to this Muslim guy and said, if that was your boy, what would you have done? And without hesitating, the Muslim said, I'd kill him. This is more aggressive than you think. And this is what's odd. You would think the father would have just body slammed that boy to the mat. Instead, he did exactly what he was asked. And he divided his bios, his property, his livelihood between them. Does the them mean that the elder brother got his right then? I don't know. Not many days later, the younger man gathered all he had. Actually, that's not a very good translation. When I was reading this in my devotions just yesterday at the house uh, with the NET, I'm reading that for my devotions this year. So the New English translation, it says that he assessed the value. And that's good because this idea of gathered, you think, oh, well, he got his bedroll and he, he got his suitcase. And he, oh, no. What do you think the dad gave him? 
A 401k? He gave him sheep and cattle and chickens. So he took those down to the local bank and he cashes them. In other words, everybody in the village knows this boy is in rebellion in his family. Hmm. He gathered all he had and went into a far country. He wouldn't have had to go very far. The Gentiles didn't live far away. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now that could imply a lot of things, but if you take it for just what it says financially, it means he said in Vegas, put it on red, spin the wheel. Do you know why we call this story the parable of the prodigal son? It's because of that verse. Do you know what prodigal means? I grew up thinking that prodigal meant, oh, he's, he's bad. He's bad. He's a bad boy. No. Prodigal means to lavish upon. And he lavished his livelihood at the roulette table. He la- but you see, there are two prodigals in the story. As Tim Keller reminds us, the other prodigal is God. I'll save it squandered his property. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine. Now some of you are thinking, okay, times got hard. Oh, you couldn't be more mistaken. You see, a famine in the Bible is the narrator's way of saying, somebody ain't obeying Deuteronomy. I mean, how do you think the book of Ruth starts out? That great love story. You talk about a woman who's kind of forward, jeepers, creepers. But anyway, Ruth... <laughs> uncovers his legs. Holy cow, what a proposal. Anyway, so, um, so here's, how does the book, in the days of the judges, there was a ra'av in the land. A famine. That's the narrator's way of saying, that's not supposed to happen. Because if you obey God, the rain comes from heaven, the crops grow on the ground, and the women's wombs are filled with children. This is the narrator's way of saying, something is way out of whack here. So a famine arose in the country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Let's see, that'd be a Gentile. Who sent him into the fields to feed. You surely know enough about the Levitical Dietary Code to know that they don't serve bacon and Jewish tables. Pigs. And he was longing to be fed. That phrase will be used in the next chapter about a story about Lazarus and the rich man. The Lazarus wanted to eat what was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This is more than just down on your luck. And then comes a wonderful moment. I wonder if you've had this moment. Kyle Eidelman wrote about it in his book, Aha! And when he came to himself, that's exactly what the Greek Bible says. I think you're NIV. Does anybody got NIV? Does it say when he came to his senses? Yeah, not good enough. When he came to himself, have you done that? Have you come to yourself? Really had kind of a come to Jesus meeting and agreed with him against his verdict against you? It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. He's preparing his little speech, isn't he? And I will say, father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. Now, guys, verse 20 might be the greatest word in the New Testament on the grace of God without ever using the word grace. But while he was still a long way off, the Greek word makron, while he was far out, far out, it says his father saw him, felt compassion. There's that splot, needs of my word again, and ran to him. We have a God who runs. Do you realize how undignified that is? Middle Eastern men do not run. Because that means you'd have to gird up your loins. You'd have to get up your britches and retie your belt. And you, you don't expose your ankles if you're a Middle Eastern man. That's not kosher. This father seems to be willing to break all kinds of barriers just to get to his boy. Embraced him. Kissed him. Ah, you've seen it on the news when Middle Eastern people greet. They don't just shake their hands. <laughs> they do a peck to this chief. A peck to this. Why do I think that this is more than just a peck? Kissed him. And he said to him, here comes a speech, push the tape recorder. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's as far as he gets. Dad cuts him off. 
Shh, quiet. No more talk. He never gets out the part about, treat me as one of your servants. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe. Oh, now let me see. Whose robe would that be? I'm guessing it's probably dad's robe. The family rode. When we went to Scotland and rode that train between Edinburgh and, uh, you know, and Glasgow, uh, I was looking for the Scott, my last name and all, the Scott family clan, you know. And uh, we found one of the, you know, what do you call those dresses that men wear? Um, huh? Kilt, yeah. We looked for the kilt. And uh, it was like $750. So I thought, okay, we're not going to buy that. So I got a tie. I got a tie. It's the Scott family t- clan tie, Okay. Well, this is the best robe. This is the father's robe, I'm guessing. And it says, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Uh, Signet ring of the father. And shoes on his feet. Wait, 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 wait. Servants, slaves, hired men did not wear shoes. So if they're going to put shoes on him, what's dad saying? He's my boy. He will wear shoes. Shoes. And bring the fattened calf. I love this. Because the article, the, T-H-E, is in the Greek Bible. It's not just any old calf. This is Betsy. That we've been saving for the 4th of July. That's who this is. We're going to butcher Betsy. And we're going to kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. And they began to, well, the cotton patch version by Clarence Jordan has it this way. They began to whoop it up. I bet they did. But here's one of the funny things about Scripture and about people who experience the grace of the Father. Not everybody likes it. Fred Craddock one time told a story about about a time when he got a call on Sunday morning. He was here in Oklahoma. He was teaching at Enid at the time. And a lady said, um, our Sunday school teacher's sick. I wonder if you could come teach Sunday school. He said, well, I guess I could. When would you like me to come? She said, today. Well, he said, lady, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I know, but you're a college teacher and you can do it. It's easy. We're just studying the parables. What parable are you studying? Parable of the prodigal son. So Craddock said, well, what the heck? It's not my church. So anyway, he got in the car. And on the way to the church, he decided to tell the story backwards. And he got to that point that we were just at, and they began to celebrate, and the prodigal came home, and then he said, in came from the back 40, the elder brother, who is also unnamed. And he said, what's going on? And the servant said, oh, don't you know, your brother's come home. We killed Betsy. We're having a party. And the brother said, are you serious? My brother, for whom I've been praying ever since he left, has come home. Praise the Lord. And the people hearing this thought, I didn't think that's how this story went. And they thought that was kind of weird, that the, but they thought, he's a college professor. He obviously knows what he's talking about. But one lady got up in the back row and she put her hands on her hips and she said, well, that's how it should have been. Well, we know how it should have been, but here's one thing that's very difficult, the grace of God. I've never had trouble believing that axe heads could float on water and that lame feet could be made to walk and blind eyes made to see and deaf ears uh, made to hear and dumb tongues loosed. I've never had, I just believe that if God existed and if God was God, God could do all the miracles the Bible talks about. This made sense to me. But can I tell you what offends me? The grace of God. That other people would get the same love that's in Jesus Christ that I received, I didn't tell you this, this past Sunday, I've been a Christian for 62 years. February the 4th, 1962, 2.30 in the afternoon, First Christian Church, Council Bluffs, Iowa. I should be farther along than I am. And it bothers me that I'm not more mature in Christ. I've been at this for 62 years. How long have you been doing it? I I struggle with the grace of God. I can identify with what this boy does. And so the elder brother comes in from the field. And this is what we have to read. See, this is the parable of two sons. And the what, what about the celebration? Now, the older son was in the field. Oh, by the way, did you know something? Whenever there's family strife in the first century, it was the elder brother who was supposed to reconcile everybody. 
And did you know this? If there's a party, the elder brother serves as MC. He's strangely absent. And he came and drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing. He heard dancing? Must have been clogging. I don't know. What is this country? Line dancing? Anyway, and he called one of the servants and asked what these meant. And he said, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him safe and sound. He's six foot four. He could play tackle for the chiefs. And he pouts. He's angry. Refused to go in. Now watch this. Watch this. And his father came out. That's what dad did to the other boy. Because the father loves both these boys. Came out. And he entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, never disobeyed your command. (laughs) Yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, he has a name. This son of yours. Notice the distance. Who has devoured, the Greek word means swallowed up, your property with prostitutes. Wait, stop. Where is that in the text? Could reckless living include prostitutes? Eh, possible. But you don't know that. I think the older brother's lying about his younger brother. You don't know that. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to them, son, you're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad because this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, he's found. Now here's the question for us. And it's this. Did the elder brother go to the party? I bet you we could just about divide you down the middle on this one. And probably... uh, Some of you would say, I I think he repented. I think he went. Made dad happy. Others of you might say, I've seen people like this. They just don't change very easy. (laughs) I think probably he just pouted outside. A real way to check to see if you're on mission with Jesus is if you can rejoice in somebody else being found. Because finding lost things is what he's after. Father in heaven, thank you for these students. And thank you for their interest in the things that relate to your work in the world. Help us to scatter the seed. Help us to help the people. Help us to find lost things. We really want to. In our best days, we really want to. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. And all the college students said.